Well, I think we're going to need God's help this morning, so let's pause for a second and we'll pray. God, we ask that we would have your mind on your people. We look at your highest creation, and there's something special here. You have a plan, you have a purpose, and help us to get uh, in on your purpose so that we might be people who love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. And I pray that we would come in line uh, in this way uh, so that we might uh, demonstrate the peacemaking uh, purposes of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So this uh, story of Hidden Figures takes place in the civil rights era, and uh, this was the seminal event. April 4th, 1968, at 6 p.m., just outside room 306 of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, it happened. A black preacher stood by the railing looking out over some rundown buildings just beyond Mulberry Street, and a shot rang out. James Earl Ray had just pulled the trigger on his 30 caliber rifle, and in that moment, the right side of MLK's face and neck were gone. He was pronounced dead at St. Joseph's Hospital an hour and five minutes later. He was 39 years old. Why? Why was this guy killed? Martin Luther King Jr. was killed because he was helping segregation come to an end, and segregation did not want to go quietly into that good night. For almost 100 years after slavery ended, you know this, Large parts of America tried to keep blacks down by keeping them separate. And so in that era, there were separate schools, and there were separate motels, and there were separate restrooms, and there were separate swimming pools, and there were separate drinking fountains. Now, what on earth was that supposed to communicate? I don't know how any other message could have come through except that to be black is to have a disease. Oh, yes, Segregation was supposed to be separate but equal, but that's not how it worked out, is it? No. Equal access to the bus, but you ride in the back. Equal access to education, but black neighborhoods, schools get half the money. Equal access to the vote, but if you're poor and you can't pay the poll tax and 90% of African Americans are poor, you can't vote. It was separate and unequal, and it was unbelievably demeaning, and it was unbelievably oppressive. And I'll tell you one thing else that it was. Racism is evil. It's a sin. That's right. It's a sin. So here's what racism is. Racism is valuing or preferring one race over and against another. And because racism invariably or values one race over another, it invariably leads to the oppression of one set of people over another. Now, this should go without saying. I wish it would go without saying, but in a world where the Bible is blamed for everything from environmental devastation to the Nazi regime... I now need to underline the fact that the Bible says that racism is sinful. The Bible says that racism is a sin. It says it's, it's, it's evil for three specific reasons that are taught from page one all the way to page last. So it's not a one-off. Number one, it is a sinful because it denies that we are equally made in the image of God from the same human parents. This is an interesting part about the Bible story. The Bible isn't just a set of rules uh, or um, you know, statutes. Uh, It is a story, and the story of the Bible has always taught that human beings are all related. So when Paul says uh, what he says to a group of Athenians in Acts chapter 17, it's not particularly novel to him or to his people, that from one man, he says, God made every nation of men to live all over the earth. 
Now, I know that you listen to that, and some of you uh, more scientifically minded will consider that to be naive to say something like that. But the troubling thing about evolutionary materialism is that it provides absolutely no objective basis for racial equality. There's no objective basis for racial equality on evolutionary materialism. If there was no singularity when the human race was forever divided from among the animals, as Christianity has always maintained, then of course it's quite plausible and possible that one race of bipedal primates could be far better at surviving than another related race and therefore could be a superior race. That's not at all um, improbable. And so, it's, in fact, that's such an obvious conclusion that you would derive from evolutionary materialism that Darwin could say, without even blushing in The Origin of Species, quote, the Western nations of Europe now so immeasurably surpass their former savage progenitors that they stand at the summit of civilization. The civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. And so, while we acknowledge that Darwin uh, was an abolitionist, He used those phrases a lot, savage races, degraded races. Very politically incorrect, but thank God it also turns out to be scientifically incorrect. Instead of providing a scientific basis for racism, the modern study of genetics is actually proving just how incredibly related all humanity is. We are the youngest species on planet Earth. And what that means is though there are great genetic diversity amongst the 7 billion of us, that we are all deeply and intimately related. In fact, if you need a, um, a new kidney, it is just as likely that you will find an organ donor in India as from Indiana. Uh, in fact, DNA tests are showing uh, how uh, common or how closely related we are despite our diverse backgrounds. I was watching on YouTube the other day uh, an amazing little video clip where it showed a bunch of Europeans from different ethnic backgrounds and they did one of these DNA tests. Are you, some people are giving this away as a Christmas gift, like it's a hundred bucks or whatever. You send in a swab from your cheek and they tell you what your racial background is. It's really fun. Everyone's looking into their background. It's like Christmas. You're opening up what your genetic background is. Well, they did this test. But first they did a bunch of interviews and what the interviews displayed was that a lot of these Europeans had very deep negative uh, impressions of other racial groups. Some that would just be downright racist. So they show the the interviews, then they do the genetic test, then they show the people again after they've done the genetic tests, and it turns out that they all have this wild diversity of uh, genetic background and racial backgrounds, and some of them racial backgrounds from races that they themselves expressed animosity towards. I mean, it's just finally a sweet little moment. Um, Now, here's here's what's fascinating about the Bible story on this. Without knowing any of this science. And 60 years before Darwin, the Christian reformer William Wilberforce fought his whole life to abolish the slave trade in England. In fact, he sent around pamphlets. Uh, next slide, please. I want to show you this. The, that that's, that um, picture on the bottom is, the, is, a, is a picture of the pamphlet that was sent around England with a black slave and a white master. And the caption read, Am I not a man and your brother? And so William Wilberforce fought tirelessly all the way up to his deathbed to end the slave trade in England. And you ask yourself, what drove him? Like, what was his ideological impulse? It was the belief that non-European races were his equal before God. Now, where the heck did he get an idea like that? The Bible. That's where he got an idea like that. He wrote, in the scripture, no 
national crime is condemned so frequently and few so strongly as oppression and cruelty and the not using our best endeavors to deliver our fellow creatures from them. So friend, against all the racial horrors of slavery, propped up by self-serving misinterpretations of scripture, against social Darwinism and the horror of eugenics, which was significant and played a role in this country all the way up to the 1950s, the Bible teaches that we are all children of the same father and all of us are long lost cousins and you have not locked eyes with another human being that wasn't made in the image of God and of incredible worth because we are all children of the same parents. We're all related. Secondly, racism is evil because it denies that we're all equally separated from God. If you were here a couple weeks ago, remember we went to the Genesis narrative and we talked about separation coming from the fall of humanity. And that separation happened in three different vectors, didn't it? We were separated from God and we were separated from the environment in which God placed us and we were separated from one another. So in one sense, racism is like a seminal kind of sin because it's a sin of separation. It's a sin that harkens back to the original sin. All sin separates. Now, you say, well, maybe, but don't the Jews, are exempt, aren't they exempt from that? Because, I mean, they're God's special people because God selected that race to be his chosen people. Well, that logic doesn't work, not according to a member of that race, a guy named the Apostle Paul, who wrote in his letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage, we Jews? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. So whenever the Bible talks about Jews and Gentiles, and it talks about it a lot, you understand it's talking about race, right? The Bible has a lot to say about race. And in this particular case, what it says is that no matter what race you are, you stand justly condemned before God. You are separated from God. And this holds no matter what your background is, no race of people has a leg up, not even God's chosen people. Thirdly, racism is evil because it denies that we are equally loved by God and invited to, into his family without condition of race according to his grace. Again, Paul from his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 10, verse 12. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who come to him. Now listen, if you want to summarize the Bible story, you can. It goes like this. God is calling a people of his very own by grace. That's it. That's the story. And it doesn't just start at the end of the story when Jesus shows up. It's at the beginning of the story, you understand? Genesis chapter 12. And God plucks a man, a nomadic Arab, out of Saudi Arabia or out of the... uh, the uh, Mesopotamian Peninsula, and says, you are going to be my means of blessing every nation on earth. I'm calling a people of my own from every tribe and every tongue, and you're going to be the seed of it, you, Abraham. And then when it comes into the New Testament, of course, this idea that God is calling a family of his very own, it just becomes a trumpet blast. And here's Jesus saying, you will go and you will make disciples of mine from every race, every nation under heaven, every tribe, every tongue. And when the redeemed of the Lord stand before him, the Bible paints this picture of a throng of people from every tribe, from every skin color, from every nation. It's unbelievable. It's beautiful and interracial. I mean, the Bible could 
couldn't make this more clear. And so Christianity has had these tremendous intellectual resources that stand against racism. And it's for that reason that Christianity banished racism not once but twice in the history of the human race and only Christianity. That's only, it's the only place it happened. And from there it spread. And so it was those resources that drove the civil rights movement led, again, mostly by Christians. And they achieved massive victories including knocking down the largest legal impediments to racial equality. And so we've come a long way. We should acknowledge that. In 1964, only one in five white Americans had any black neighbors. Today, the figure is three out of five. Today, unlike 40 years ago, black Americans form a massive block of voters. Most of them didn't vote in the early 60s, 50s, and before. Today, a black middle class has swelled to about 50%. You say that number is not very good. Well, it was 10% or lower in the 1960s. In the year 2000, 47% of African Americans now own their homes. But what do you and I hear on the news every night? What we hear is that the country is more deeply divided over race in the year 2017 than maybe it has ever been ever. So, I want you to watch this next clip again from Hidden Figures. Again, a true story of one of the hidden figures in the NASA program, a gal named Mary Jackson. And what's, what's wonderful here is that she achieves her own little victory against racial inequality. As you watch her achieve this victory, I want you to think about this. Number one, what victories remain to be achieved? And number two, how should we go about achieving them? Let's watch.
I love the happy little jig she dances there. So this is an interesting thing, and uh, this is good reading for you this week. MLK, when he was arrested in Alabama after a peaceful protest, he wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail. It's called Letter from a Birmingham Jail, six pages long. You should read it. And what's fascinating about this letter is who it was addressed to. Who was this letter addressed to? It had specific recipients. Well, as it turns out, and I never knew this before I read it this week, I never knew that it was addressed to me, which is to say it was addressed to white clergy. And what did he say to me? He said, let, my, let me mention my other disappointment. I have been disappointed with the white church and its leadership. Of course, there have been some notable exceptions, and he lists them by name. But despite these, some few have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. And then he said one thing more, and I don't want you to miss this, AC3. Listen, he said, I have heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with the desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. See, it's interesting, friends. It's 10 years before MLK. The law had already changed, right? The external law of the land was already desegregated. Segregation was illegal back in 1954. The law changed, but people like Rosa Parks were still riding the back of the bus in the middle of the 60s. Why? Because according to MLK, 10 years after desegregation, white pastors were telling their churches to obey the law because you have to. I know exactly what scripture they're referring to. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Obey the governing authorities, for the governing authorities have been established by God. Sort of like a have-to thing, right? But what did MLK want? He wanted people to follow the decree because it was right. He wanted them to follow it and embrace it from the inside from an inside place of the want-to place, not from the outside place of the have-to place, to see the stamp of God's divine hand and the brotherhood of the human race made in God's image, not because it came down as a decree from nine guys in black robes. Now, this brings us back seven days. I don't know if you were here last week. I hope you were. But when we talked, we, we, did, we talked last week about Mosaic Law. Remember what we said? We said Mosaic Law was good, but it was weak. What couldn't it do? It can't change a person. And so even the law itself hearkens ahead or looks forward to a time when people would be circumcised on the inside, when the law would be planted on the inside of a person because the law is good, but the law can't make you a new person from the outside in. Can't be done. So the gospel had to come and God by his own spirit in every penitent heart could begin that operation through faith from the inside out. I'll tell you what the law can do, though, from the outside in. It can make you arrogant and proud. From the outside in, the law can set you up, if abused, to make you feel superior. And Jesus noted that in his great rant against the teachers of the law in his day, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 2, where he said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. It's still just out here. They have not really embraced God's law. They tie up heavy, uh, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So we understand, friends, that the law can change, but the question remains, have you changed, right? The law has changed in the land. It changed 10 years before 
the civil rights movement, but did people change? Or you can hide behind the law, and Martin Luther King uh, recognized that, and when we do, we become hypocrites. And I think this is honest if we're willing to look at ourselves in the mirror, that we can feel secure because we have legally embraced an impeccable legal position. But in your heart, have you embraced God's vision for His highest creation? What is your legal position? How do you approach the law when it comes to race? You know, I don't have to tell you, if you, don't, you, you study this for about five seconds, you realize that we were polarized on this issue, and we're polarized in terms of two legal positions which we hide behind. And those legal positions are generally determined whether you lean liberal or lean conservative. Let me just net it out for you, shall I? If you're liberal, you want the law to focus on corporate responsibility over racism, to overcome it. You want the law to acknowledge historic racial injustices and to compensate for them with laws favoring the historically oppressed. If you're conservative, you want the law to focus on individual responsibility to overcome racism. You want the law to be blind to race. If races are equal, the best way to equality is let the law be applied to the races equally. And so the debate rages on, and AC3, let's admit, the world is so polarized. So the question is, is the main problem today structural racism or is the main problem today personal responsibility? Well, listen, I'm not going to answer that question today, and I'll tell you why. Because no Christian should be forced into that either-or position. Never. Why not? Because if you listen to spokespersons of either view, you will find that they all acknowledge some truth in what the other side is saying. And I'll give you two examples, and both of them from African-American spokespersons. For one, Michael Dyson, who feels that the main race problem we have is still systemic in nature. Nevertheless, he concedes, there are undoubtedly lethal circumstances afoot in black America, and we do indeed need the voices of the elders to ring out and the wisdom of the fathers and mothers to resonate loudly. Beautiful quote. On the other side, a guy named William Cosby, who feels that the main problem is personal responsibility, also concedes. He can, his concession, we're not saying there's no discrimination or no racial profiling today. There is. So that tells me that you and I should probably not be forced into an either-or situation. And maybe what that means is whichever way you lean here today, that you might need a shake-up to move past your impeccable, too tight legal position towards a heart position that honors all God's children and the kingdom of vision for justice. So first, I will address you, if you're in the personal responsibility camp, you might need to see that sometimes the best decisions still come up against racist power structure. I'll give you an example. There's a Christian pastor, he's white, Robert Lithicum, and he led a young woman to Christ during a time when he did an inner city ministry on the East Coast. This is quite a while back, maybe about 20 years ago. And he led her to Christ, and he put her in a Bible study, and she was growing, and she went back to school, and she was getting involved in the local church, and you're thinking to yourself, this is great, because from those personal decisions, a lot of the sting of discrimination could be overcome, and we can move on into a new day. A year later, he came back to see his friends, and he found out that Ava, the young woman that he had led to Christ, had gone into prostitution. He found her, and he vented frustration at her choices. Why didn't you stick with your Bible study, she said. Men came, told me I looked good, said they wanted me to be a prostitute, and if I didn't, they'd beat up my father and my brother. Robert said, Ava, that's just terrible. You should have trusted God and called the police. She said, it was the police who were going to beat up my father and brother. 
what was I supposed to do? And so in reflecting on this later on in life, Pastor Lithicum says sometimes it's not enough to call people into faith and then see the personal uh, responsible choices that follow and change a person's life. As a Christian, I have to see what other factors are militating against those good choices. I'll give you another example. It's a good one because it doesn't involve the classic black-white divide. Bill Stuntz wrote a book called On Criminal Justice. He points out that police forces were invented in the 1840s. Do you know why police forces were invented in the 1840s in America? Because of the Irish, those dang Irish. You're not having fun with that, I guess. Uh, so, so, oh, the Irish, they showed up in the 1840s because of the potato famine in Ireland, right? And they created a huge racial, race-based criminal culture. All sorts of violence was caused on the East Coast in the major metropolitan areas in America. Lots of trouble. But Stuntz points out that uh, the problem essentially was contained and evaporated over a period of about 20 years. No more Irish race problem. Now, how could that be so? Well, it was because uh, the, they started to empower the Irish to own the criminal justice system in their communities. So the Irish criminals were tried by Irish juries and Irish judges, and they were arrested by Irish policemen and Irish district attorneys. In other words, the Irish community was empowered to actually deal with their own crime problem, and they got on top of it. In the tragic case of Michael Brown, I want you to look at the numbers in Ferguson community. I want you to put aside what you know about Michael Brown, his actions on that day, and the police officer involved. Look at the figures in that community. 67% of the population is black. What is the population of blacks on that police force? 6%. So you say, well, 6% is a free country, so I guess only 6% of, of people in the black community feel that they should you know, move into law enforcement. No. There are systemic issues that are involved in why that number is at 6%. There is, in many cases, a hatred, not just of the justice system, but, in fact, education and policing and authority of all kinds. And what's going on there? Those are systemic issues, friends. That people who have a vision for what God has a vision for could see and maybe begin to do something about. Now, secondly, if you're in the systemic responsibility camp, you might need to consider that some systemic interventions to overcome racism do more harm than good. For example, Shelby Steele, an African-American from the Hoover Institute, he describes uh, how he's begun to feel about affirmative action in his case. He says, yet for me, it was precisely this virtuous interventionism that over time began to feel more and more humiliating. Whether the determinism was bad or intended to be good, as with interventionism, blacks were still seen as determined beings without will or agency. You understand what he's saying? He's saying if the sort of paternal view is that if you're black in America today, you can't help yourself. And he says, therefore, we did not have full humanity. Dehumanizing to be looked at like that. The fact is there will be massive movement towards success markers in the lives of the poor and disenfranchised minority races if different decisions readily within everyone's power were made. And this is possible long before all systemic issues of discrimination are fixed. I'll go back uh, many years, back to the Clinton administration. There was a domestic policy advisor who decided, uh, based on his research, that only three things were needed in America to be done to avoid poverty. Number one, graduate from high school. Number two, marry before having a child. Number three, have that child after the age of 20. Just based on statistical number crunching, that was the ticket 
into the middle class and social justice. So they, re- they updated these numbers and they found that the success sequence today is still holding true, only it's a bigger deal because way less people are following it across the races. Across the races. Today, 97% of those who earn at least a high school diploma, work, get married before having kids, will not be poor by the time they enter their 30s. 97%, that's like a guarantee. Social injustice solution. All these success markers hold true across every racial demographic. So you have a particular, if you have a particularly acute negative marriage culture, you will have a particularly acute social justice problem. So listen to this statistic. At the time of civil rights, three out of every five black children were raised in an intact family with biological mother and father. Forty years later, the number is reversed. Three in five black children are raised in a single parent home. That's a national tragedy. It's an epidemic. And by the way, it's beginning to cross racial lines. Those numbers are almost the same for white America. So what's the real race solution? Personal responsibility or systemic justice? Yes, please. Shelby Steele, uh, I think, really charts the middle ground beautifully, and he summarizes it in one quote. Just listen to this. I think it's beautiful. Blacks can have no real power without taking responsibility for their own educational and economic development. Whites can have no racial innocence without earning, or earning it by eradicating discrimination and helping the disadvantaged to develop. So there you go. So will you get on God's plan? You've got, you've got a circle, and you've got a tool in your hand. You've got something available to you to begin to walk out God's beautiful dream. And what would it be? You're going to listen now to this special song. It's from the movie, Running. And as we kind of climb inside the plight of someone who doesn't want special treatment, just wants to stop running, maybe you could ask yourself what you could do to get on God's page.
face. Oop, choo.
<laughs> Best line in the movie. Here at NASA, we all pee the same color. You know, it's Hollywood, so there's got to be embellishment. But don't you want that to be true, that a guy took a crowbar to the, to the sign, you know? You know, that sign being broken down is a powerful picture of the wall that the Bible says Christ has brought down. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, this is the Apostle Paul again speaking. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He was made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And by which he means we all, we all have access to the Father by one spirit through Christ. Do you see what the gospel does? Do you see the leveling effect of it? Do you see the beauty of it? It, it destroys the power of our economy of separation. It convicts any heart that would stand on some old irrelevant division based on race. And when it comes to that conviction, what is a powerful story I want to show you? One more video, please. Um, a pastor some of you know, you probably read his blog, some of you. His name is John Piper. He's a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota. What you may not know is he grew up before the Civil War rights era, Civil War, Civil Rights era, and uh, would describe himself as a racist. Let's watch. If you want to check more of that out online, he's written a book called Bloodlines, and um, it's an excellent resource on this topic. And I hope that you see just one more picture of what the gospel does. 
The gospel destroys the arbitrary and ugly and superficial lines that we draw, right? The prideful stances that we take. It challenges you on where you get your identity from. And that applies across the board, whether majority or minority race. I go to James chapter 1. This is the brother of Jesus who's written this nugget in the back of your New Testament. And in James chapter 1, we read an injunction to do different kinds of people that meet in every congregation, including this one. James says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Huh? Next verse. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, which is to say their low position, since they will pass away like a wild flower. Now, what's being said? What is James trying to say to us? He's saying, listen, if you're riding high in the position of privilege in a culture, any culture, because of your affluence, because you're in the majority, just remember something. Before Christ, you are equally a sinner and in desperate need like everybody else, and you are made out of dust. And you're just like everybody else. You are just a man. And conversely, hey, listen, if you're riding low in the position of the minority, in a position of discrimination in the culture, maybe because of your skin color or your past or your lack of money or all three, just remember something. James is saying when Christ calls you into his family, you are a child of the king. You are not a nobody. You have a high position. You have a high position. Don't define your identity where the culture puts you, whether you're riding high or whether you're riding low. Do not define your identity where the culture puts you. Oh, friends, you understand the gospel overlays a whole different economy. It destroys this whole economy based on artificial distinctions and its obsession with insiders and outsiders, and it turns it all upside down. And in Christ, the gospel says, there's a radical kind of inclusivity, and it's always been this way. It didn't just come upon us after the civil rights movement. You understand? In part, this spawned the civil rights movement. It spawned the end of slavery in medieval Europe. It spawned the end of slavery in the English Empire and in America. Verses like Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, for all are one in Christ. I mean, friends, I love the gospel. I just was resonating with John Piper this week. I love the gospel for its beautiful effect on the human soul and bringing us into a world where God sees us. And so this vision, friends, it's one day going to come to a kind of beautiful and amazing fruition for when the song of the kingdom finally is sung in completion, when Jesus comes to claim his own, the Bible describes that amazing scene with these words from Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. You are worthy Speaking of Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. (laughs) It's the second time that the blood of Christ has been brought up. So apparently blood matters, not yours. Apparently, your bloodline matters. It just needs to be the bloodline of Christ. For that is the blood that covers over every sin, including the sin of racism. And so, friend, maybe we would ask ourselves the convicting question this morning. 
how do I walk out God's purpose in this broken world? Because I don't think racism is going away until Jesus comes back. There will always be an opportunity for you and I to live out a world that pushes back against sin separation because it's going to show up its ugly head next year and the year after that somewhere and in your world. What are, what are the ways in which you could be the Kevin Costner character? I mean, here's a guy, I bet you uh, Mr. Harrison is the actual historic name of the guy who was running that math department in NASA. And here's a guy who says to himself, I'm not a racist. And all of a sudden his eyes are open and he looks around and says, I have some power. I don't have all power. Maybe I can't turn a court. Maybe I can't, you know, bend the ear of a president. But you know what I could do? I could take this sign down. And by golly, I'm going to grab my crowbar and I'm going to take this sign down. So what could you do? There's something. There's something you could do. To live out God's dream. And then, friends, we will be the people who follow the Prince of Peace, who has made peace between us and himself by his blood, the only blood that counts. And then we will be peacemakers in our world and draw people up into the bloodline of Christ. Let's pray together. God, may we be your people in this world, loving the things that you love and hating the things that you hate. And so, Father, may we prove ourselves to be your people by being peacemakers in a world that's torn apart. May we be people who destroy the dividing wall of hostility in mimicry of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, be peacemakers as you have come as the Prince of Peace. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.